You've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. Throughout my career, I've been blessed with opportunities to work with a wide variety of leaders, and every one of them helped me shape my view of the type of leader I'd like to be. There are some leaders that I'd love to still be working with today, and there are some that, well, uh, I'm sure they've grown in their leadership skills since my time with them, I hope. Either way, I learned lots of valuable leadership lessons from every person I reported to throughout my career. But I got to be honest here, the most memorable lessons are the ones where I thought to myself, wow, I can't believe they did that. If I'm ever in that same situation, not only should I not do that, I should do the opposite. Most people who teach about leadership will tell you, you know, here's how I became successful. Here's how you do it. Rarely will you find someone who's vulnerable enough to say, well, I made some mistakes. Do not do what I did. And that's why this week's guest stands out among most other leadership thought leaders. It's Scott Miller. Scott's the executive VP of thought leadership with Franklin Covey. He's the host of Franklin Covey's On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast. And he's one of the few authors who's written leadership book filled with lessons on what not to do. Management mess to leadership success. It's 30 different challenges he went through and that you need to overcome if you want to be seen as a valued leader. And I had a lot of fun talking through those challenges with Scott. Let's take a listen. Hi, Scott. How are you today? Matt, I am great. It is a beautiful summer day here in downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. Awesome. It's a summer day here in Nashville, which means it looks beautiful, but it doesn't feel beautiful. Well, that's why I moved. I'm actually from Florida originally and moved out to Utah 25 years ago where there's no humidity. Matt, you actually can live where there is no humidity. Move that west, seems- brother. Go west. <laughs> Go west, young man. Yeah. Go west, young man. Well, you know, from Florida to Utah, that's a big difference. And when you were in Florida, you worked for Disney, right? Well, I did until they said I don't. So I did. <laughs> I, I'm actually from Orlando, born and raised in Winter Park, a suburb of Orlando. Spent my first 26 years there. Spent four years, almost four years, with the Disney Development Company, which is the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company. They invited me to leave. More on that later, if you'd like. And then (laughs) so I uh, was recruited by the Franklin Covey Company, the world's largest leadership development firm in Utah. And so here I was, a single Catholic boy from Orlando, moving out to Provo, Utah, which was like me and the priest out here. There were no Catholics (laughs) in Utah 25 years ago. So it was a pretty 
remarkable cultural change. Rocky at first made it, and it's been a beautiful journey. I've never looked back. My parents are still in the same house I was raised in 55 years ago or so, but it's been a great ride to be out in the mountains. Very cool. And it sounds like Provo likes having you there and you like being in Provo. So well, I didn't say that. You said that. That's the word on the street. Yeah, I don't know about that. You know what? It's been great. You know, historically, you know, Provo was 90%, you know, Mormon, right? 25 years ago, Utah has become much more diverse. I lived in Park City and I live in Salt Lake City, but it's been, uh, it's really a great state. I'm honored to be a Utah resident. It's a beautiful place to vacation, beautiful place to have four different seasons. And my wife and I are raising our three young boys here, and I'm blessed to be a part of this state. Beautiful. And no humidity. I'm telling you, man, don't underrate that, especially when you're over 50, which you, you, oh. haven't, you haven't experienced yet. But I find that the older I am, the less I can deal with the heat and humidity. We're in the desert, but you know, we're in the high desert, right? So there's a big difference being in Utah than maybe, say, Phoenix. Oh, yeah. I'm not yet 50. I'm working on it. But every year, I have a few more complaints about the weather. Yeah. Well, you're with Franklin Covey now, and you've had a long career there. But today, today you're leading the thought leadership team. And I'd say that not many companies have that team, the thought leadership team. What does your team really do? Well, you know, the misnomer is a lot of companies do, they just don't know they do, right? So, so here's what I would say is, you know, I've been in the firm 25 years, started in sales, sales, sales leadership, became the chief marketing officer for about eight years, and then transitioned over to become the executive vice president of thought leadership. That's a term that we hear a lot. Thought leadership really is just the new public relations. You know, gone are the days where companies are issuing press releases and calling up reporters and trying to book interviews. There are no reporters. (laughs) There are no newsrooms anymore. Companies now, instead of having to pull press towards them, have to push interest out to those who need to know what their expertise is. So thought leadership really is just making sure that the expertise, the curation of your organization's point of view is heard by those who need to hear it, whether that's through writing books or columns or interviews or podcasts or keynote speeches or live events or whatever it is. My job is to make sure that the expertise that Franklin Covey has through a variety of mediums is directed at the right prospects, people who are interested in building a culture of trust, people who are focused on executing their strategy, trying to build leaders, trying to build their sales performance capabilities. So I'm basically just turning a PR function into a 20, 2021 mouthpiece. Oh, wow. That is a fantastic way to look at the new PR for the 2020s. But if I think about other companies that would be doing that same role or that same work, my thought is that they would be 100% showcasing their own expertise, maybe every once in a while showcasing some case studies from their customers. But it sounds like Franklin Covey's not exactly like that. It sounds like, especially with your podcast, it sounds like you also showcase expertise from others. We do because that's one of our fundamental values is what Dr. Covey, who was our co-founder and of course wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he was a passionate advocate of having an abundance mentality versus a scarce mentality. And so part of our legacy in 40 years has been that, you know, we don't think we're an expert in everything. We, in fact, we adore Ken Blanchard. We really respect Marcus Buckingham, right? We're good friends with the founders of Vital Smarts, the group that wrote 
crucial conversations. There's enough business for all of us. Now, we want to win and we want to have the most business, but at the same time, we think there are strong voices that we can use our brand to even lift up as well to build awareness, learning, education, skills, capability in organizations. We aren't the only experts in the world on how to become a great leader. So to your point, we host now what is the world's largest subscribed to and distributed weekly podcast dedicated to leadership. And we interview all kinds of people that we don't tend to interview direct competitors. But you know, if Kim Blanchard calls me, I would be honored to have Kim Blanchard on because he is and was a good friend of Dr. Covey, a friend of mine. We like this idea of being abundant in everything we do. Our salespeople do not trash talk our competitors. We don't position our products against our competitors. We can, and we will if someone asks us to, but we're fiercely focused on what we do better than anybody else. We prove that through our own track record, our own solutions, our own measurement. At the same time, we like to be a, a force of good. And if that means lifting somebody else up, all the better. Wow. I would venture to say that the majority of businesses today don't necessarily think that way. And I love the fact that you said that your salespeople do not trash talk your competitors. And this makes me think that Franklin Covey and some of your competitors or other leadership experts, a lot of them focus on the higher purpose. The big goal is helping people become better leaders. The goal is not just to beat my competitors, it's to help others be better leaders. And you're all fighting the same fight against the same enemy. Yeah, well said. You know, our mission, Matt, is to enable greatness in people and organizations everywhere. That's the company mission statement of Franklin Covey. And so if enabling greatness means that we think another competitor's solution might be better for you, then we would recommend that. Now, that's not our go-to strategy. We don't open with right. that. And our sales force, I'm sure, struggles right, with making sure the client does have a solution that exactly matches their need. But we didn't build our reputation by selling solutions to clients that don't fit them. There might be a time when a client might come, I might say, you know what, what you really need is you need to look at crucial conversations. It's actually a phenomenal solution from one of our competitors down in Southern Utah or down in Provo. I'd be very comfortable because that client is going to come back to me when they have a greater need because they see me as a trusted advisor, not just as a salesperson trying to make my monthly quota. Now, that's easy to say when you're 52 and you've built some success, but those leadership, those character traits, those principles that govern human behavior will come back to benefit you in the long term every time. Absolutely. And I'm so thankful to hear you say that and to hear you share that because you're right. There may be specific problems that a customer has that aren't necessarily in your wheelhouse, but if you can recommend them to other competitor tools to help solve those specific problems, they're going to come back to you for when you can solve their specific problems. I love that. And I've got 25 years that says that's absolutely true. And the problem is, if Franklin Covey sells a solution to a client based on us you know, manipulating the fit, they're not going to renew. They're not going right. to expand their business. It's going to die when the budget dies or when it proves to be not the right fit. So we are hyper vigilant. We're extremely deliberate when it comes to making sure that our solution exactly matches the client's need, not trying to fit a square solution in a round hole and make it appear to fit. And then eight months from now, be exposed as, you know, not the best partner. It's not the way we win. 
Absolutely not. And that's also not the way to manage your reputation as well. Well said. Well, I want to talk about your book. Finally. Well, of course, yeah. So <laughs> this, is, this is a really interesting approach to writing a leadership book. And you wrote and recently released you know, Management Mess to Leadership Success. I don't know if you're a Parks and Rec fan, if you watch Parks and Recreation. You know, I know what it is. I don't watch it with frequency, but I do know what it is. Well, on the show, Tom Haverford, one of his greatest achievements was writing a best-selling book called Failure, A Success Story. And all it was was all around the lessons about everything that he's failed at. And I would say that it takes a different approach in calling out your own mistakes throughout your leadership career. And that's really vulnerable of you. So why did you decide to take that approach for this book? Well, you're right. It was especially vulnerable. In fact, I'm probably a bit of a pariah at Franklin Covey because we tend to share, I think, probably the better stories than some of the worst stories. Welcome to being human. You know, I've been in this business now with Disney 30 years. And I've read thousands of books, right? Like you, I host a podcast every week. So I read on average two books a week, sometimes three, to make sure that I'm prepared for the guest. And most leadership books I have found, and I have read thousands of them, not hundreds. Wow. They are fairly academic. They're fairly ethereal, often written by professors, sometimes, you know, Fortune 50 CEOs. And they're great, but they're not very relatable. And they're not especially raw. And I wanted to write a leadership book from a guy who's a leader of people and a leadership company that was really relatable, that shared leadership is tough. Leadership can be unrelenting. It's sometimes unrewarding in the short term. And it's not for everyone. Not everyone should be a leader of people, just like not everyone should be an anesthesiologist or a commercial airline pilot or a digital designer. Not everyone should be a leader of people. I think too often organizations lure people into leadership roles versus lead them in. We promote the best salesperson to be the sales leader. We promote the most efficient dental hygienist to be the lead dental hygienist. And it's wrong on so many levels. So I did not come to leadership easily. I always thought that leadership was sort of loud and charismatic and convincing and big, bold personalities. And I learned that that's not always the case, that humble, retiring, quiet leaders can be just as or even more effective sometimes. So I looked at the 40 years of Franklin Covey's total experience and picked out with some team members 30 challenges that every leader faces. And then I wrote a story typically around how I had violated that challenge (laughs) or that I had failed. And in some cases where I had succeeded, I wasn't a total mess. But the premise of the book to your question was, you know what? Everybody's got a mess. Every leader's got a mess going on. Your receptionists, your funders, your bankers, your clients, your colleagues, they all know about it. So why not as a leader, just own your mess? Because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs, to surface them, talk about them, be vulnerable. Matt, I'm convinced that vulnerability is a leadership competency, just like understanding inventory turns and calculating EBITDA and hiring and terminating. That vulnerability as a model is a new leadership competency. The book did extremely well. It shot to number one on Amazon for six solid weeks. It actually was number one on Amazon just yesterday in the Kindle version. So I think it was a different way to talk about leadership and how hard it is. And that's why I think it's resonated. Absolutely. Because to your point, it helps make it relatable and it helps people feel better about their own challenges. Oh, you know what? I'm struggling here. I'm making these mistakes. I'm not the only one making these mistakes. And here are the lessons on how I can turn it around. I think that's exactly the value proposition of the book. And I think 
people have resonated with it because it gave people permission to understand, you're right, leadership isn't for everyone. Maybe it's not for me, or maybe I want to become a better leader, so let me be better prepared to look at these 30 challenges and see where Scott you know, stepped in the pothole and fell all the way in by either doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or thinking perhaps the wrong thing. So these 30 challenges, I didn't invent them. I kind of organized them, sequenced them, curated them, and then as a good Catholic does, confessed my sins around them in the hopes that others could learn from mostly my messes. There you go. Now go say two Hail Marys and, <laughs> and right your wrongs. <laughs> but one of the things that you mentioned a moment ago was that a lot of times when people are promoted into their leadership, they're promoted because of how well they did their previous job, not because they're seen as a leader. And you know, they probably haven't had much training in actual leadership. So how can business owners and how can business leaders get ahead of that challenge and ensure that their team members are receiving leadership training at the right time? Delighted you asked that. To your point, Harvard Business Review published a study about two years ago that said literally empirically that the average age somebody receives their first promotion into a management role mat is age 30. Yet wow. the average age that someone receives their first formal leadership development training, age 42. Wait, those numbers are in the wrong order. 12 years. 12 years between the time people receive on average their first promotion into management wow. until they receive their first training. So like me, we got well-intended people. They're not bad people. They're bad right. leaders. Those aren't the same, that they're kind of wrecking havoc across the organization. They're trying to do what I did, which is to be the smartest person in the room, turn everybody into their clone, make everybody their mini-me, and channel their own talents their own passions, their own fears, often onto other people. When in fact, your job is not to be the genius in the room. Your job, to quote Liz Wiseman, who wrote the book Multipliers, your right. job is to be the genius maker of others. So I think the first thing organizations need to do is stop promoting the best individual producer. But look to your suggestion at what are the leadership talents of people? Do they listen well? Are they patient? Do they have an abundance mentality? Do they take delight in the success of others. By the way, the opposite of that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you probably shouldn't be a leader of people. Are you able to listen well? Do you have natural empathy? Can you have high courage conversations? Can you confront reality? Do you model the behavior that your organization wants to see in the other people on the team? So those are all kind of questions to ask. And I think the most important tactical thing to do is to sit someone down and say, hey, Matt, great job on hitting your sales quota, right? Seven quarters in a row, you're crushing it. You know, Matt, we've got a sales leadership position that's opening up, and we just wanted to talk to you about, would this be the right role for you to progress in? Let me talk a bit about the ups and the downs of that. So I'm gonna draw a T-chart. On the left-hand side, Matt, here are the six or seven things that we think you do really well. Bam, 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 and bam. Matt, you do these things like world-class. And Matt, if you were to be promoted to be a leader, you would probably need to stop doing five of these seven things because these talents will not transfer well into a sales leadership role. And Matt, conversely, on this side of the T-chart, here are nine or 10 competencies that right now, by and large, you don't possess. That's okay. But you're going to have to learn these new and better behaviors quite quickly in the coming days, weeks, and months. We're going to help you. We're going to teach you but I just need you to be very aware that what got you here may not succeed over there. It's those 
transparent conversations, Matt. It's those brutal realities on this is what it's like to be a leader of people, Matt. Here's what your day will now look like. Here's what your month will now look like. Here's how you'll be evaluated. Here's how you'll find success. And if these things don't seem naturally exciting to you, then let's not put you in that position because the last thing we want to do, Matt, is lose you as our top salesperson and then six months into the role, lose you as a sales leader because that's bad for everyone. The problem, Matt, though, is most organizations don't have a career growth strategy for people other than being promoted into leadership. In most organizations, the only way to get promoted, earn more money, get a new title, get a better office, have more influence, have more power, is to be a leader of people. And that's something I think many organizations should reflect on. Is there a career path for people that are individual producers for them to stay in your organization or do they have to leave to get promoted? I think it's it's good advice for people. It really is. And I think it also helps to ensure that the individual contributor understands that the feedback that they're getting around, these are the leadership competencies where you can be more effective, or these are the leadership competencies that we're not seeing from you that you can fix, that that's not necessarily a bad (laughs) thing. Those are just areas for them to grow. It's opportunities for them to improve. It's absolutely right. I think it starts with the leader, right? If you as a leader currently can sit down and very vulnerably, transparently talk about your own challenges, the things you struggled with, that you didn't just launch here to this role. I think gone are the days of leaders kind of separating themselves from their team, right? Vertically, like you're untouchable. I think that the average tenure of someone in an organization now is three years. And if you want to lengthen that, if you want to make sure your team members choose to stay longer than the average you know, stint, people don't quit leaders who love them, Matt. And I mean that an appropriate term, right? If you make it safe and easy to talk about your own fears, share other people's concerns, ask them questions like, what's it like to work for me? What's it like to work a trade show booth with me? What's it like to be in a team product launch with me? Leaders that are self-aware, are vulnerable, talk about their messes. That's the kind of leader most people want to work for and won't leave for one more dollar an hour, right? Across the road. Right. And it's recognizing that leaders themselves aren't infallible and they have opportunities to grow as well. And a lot of times it's your own team members that are able to help you understand where you can grow. If you'll let them. If you'll let them, right. It requires you to have an extraordinary level of humility. I learned that you know humility is really born out of confidence. Confident people can be humble people. It's arrogant leaders, arrogant people who are incapable of demonstrating humility. So if you want to build that connection with your team members, step out of your office, step down off the podium or the dais, metaphorically, (laughs) literally, and you can still earn respect from your team members. You can still hold people accountable. You can still make sure people deliver results by being more accessible and vulnerable with them. But I think even more so because now you can have conversations that are more empathic, that are more real, sobering. People don't want to disappoint people that they like. People don't want to disappoint people that they respect. People are willing, I think, more freely to disappoint people who they don't have a respectful connection with. Right. And to your point, you mentioned being empathetic. I think having empathy and showing empathy and instilling empathy among team members helps people to care for and respect each other much more. It does. You know, it's a term that we hear all the time. People think, can you teach empathy? I think you can absolutely teach empathy. Oh, empathy yeah. comes from listening. We could talk for five minutes 
on better listening skills, but listening is also a leadership competency. And it's counterintuitive because most leaders are trained to communicate, be in influence mode, persuasion mode, selling mode, clarify mode. And listening is a leadership competency that builds empathy and empathy builds trust. Empathy definitely builds trust. Absolutely. And I love how you say that it's built through listening. I think it's about listening to what's being said and listening to what's not being said. And in addition to listening, I think it also involves observing, observing your people and understanding. Well, like, hey, you know, what's going on in this person's life right now? Or what's going on? What are they struggling with? And how can I help them? Wow. You could drop the mic right there. Nicely said. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Something you mentioned, actually, I think you've mentioned it twice already. And I love hearing about this. I love talking about having an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. But I don't think that I've ever really heard about an abundance mindset relating to leadership. So help me understand how that relates. Well, sure. In fact, I share a story. I think it's challenge two where I share a story in the book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, where a junior employee who reported to me, we'll call him Jimmy. That happens to be his name. And Jimmy left the organization. I recruited him back reporting to me, I don't know, probably 12 years my junior. And we went to the Cracker Barrel. I love the Cracker Barrel, Matt. I'm the only guy there in wingtips and French cuffs, but I love the Cracker Barrel. Mondays, pot roast is the lunch, mashed potatoes. I mean, who needs therapy when you got the Cracker Barrel? So I, I take- fried chicken day. Oh man, that's fried chicken day is what? I don't know. Wednesday's pot pie. I know Wednesday is pot pie. Thursday is turkey. Maybe it's Tuesday, but I digress. So Jimmy and I go for our, you know, monthly one-on-one at the Cracker Barrel and he sits down after we order. He says, and I'm not kidding you. He says, Scott, I'm sick and tired of you taking credit for all of my projects. And I was like, whoa. Now the old Scott would have lashed out and, you know, eaten him like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. But the newer Scott sat and listened. I didn't defend, deflect, deny. I disagreed inside. But I listened to him empathetically as I heard him unwind numerous instances where he felt, as the chief marketing officer, I had taken credit for projects that he'd worked on, whether it was sending out a company-wide email announcing a product launch that he'd led, whether it was standing on stage at the town hall, talking about some initiative and mentioning his name. And he felt like through my power, through my charisma, through my kind of wingspan, I I cast a pretty big shadow that I was scarcely taking all the credit. And I had to think about this. And as much as I disagreed with him mentally, I had to kind of move into what his feelings were. And I began to understand that I was not leading with an abundance mentality, that I was wondering, craving, seeking, searching, securing, more credit, more fame, more attention for me. I mean, I was the CMO reporting to the CEO. How much more attention did I need, Matt? Well, apparently more. It was a colleague at the company that once said to me, Scott, you'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. Budget, income, paper clips, toner for the printer, credit, attention, love, And so it was at that moment that I really began to understand what it means to have a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset because leaders turn the spotlight onto their team members, right? They lift them up. I'd won all of the trips to Maui. I've got all the President's Club awards. I've got the stock options. I've made it to the top. Why did I feel the need to operate so scarcely? Now, I didn't see, without him bringing it to my attention, that some of the things that I was doing 
was making me look very scarce. I actually think I'm a quite generous, abundant person, but I was behaving in some ways that looked very scarcely. So I became much more mindful of making sure that instead of me just announcing it, I bring Jim on the stage with me and pass him the microphone. Is he going to say it as well as I will? Probably not. Is he going to have the same dynamism and credibility? Probably not. But I can clean up anything very graciously if I have to. But getting Jim on the stage with me and handing him my microphone two or three minutes is what abundance mentality looks like in action. And I'm trying to do more of that. You'll never know how much is enough until you've defined how much is enough. That is a strong quote right there. I love it. And I think of one of my previous colleagues from FedEx, and I've seen her rise in her career. And I always loved how throughout her career, it was her team members that were the ones winning the awards. And she was always promoting the work of her team members and always promoting their success. And you saw her team members' names being touted more so than her. But you knew that because she was the one leading that team, that she was improving and she was growing as well. And now she has a really fantastic career elsewhere. And I'm seeing her doing the same things online. Online, I'm seeing her touting her team members for the work that her team members did and not her. I think that's the essence of a multiplier. I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite leadership books ever is this book written by Liz Wiseman called Multipliers. And the premise of the book is that our job is not to be obviously diminishers of other people, although we are as leaders always accidentally diminishing. But our job is to be the multiplier, right? Not to be the genius in the room, but to be the genius maker. This book had a profound impact, more so than any book I've ever read around leadership. I really encourage your listeners to pick up, perhaps even before mine, the book Multipliers. It's an excellent book and it will really help you understand how you can turn the spotlight off of yourself onto others. I will definitely put a link to multipliers in the show notes here. So one of the things that hit me when I was reading your book, I used to consider myself a pretty loyal person, a pretty loyal team member until I read your chapter on loyalty. So can you share your definition of what it means to truly show loyalty? Oh, sure. I mean, Dr. Covey, of his many wise things he said is, if you want to build trust with those who are present, you are loyal to those who are absent. I think the biggest cancer in every organization is gossip, is talking about someone differently when they're not around than when you would if they were. And so I think one of the greatest roles of a leader is to model what they want to see in all of their team members. Loyalty isn't necessarily about being blindly loyal. Loyalty is about just not disparaging people in their absence, perhaps even defending them, but having the courage, having the diplomacy, to sit down with them directly to their face takes a lot of courage and talk to them about an issue that you're struggling with related to them and then encouraging others to do the same. Dr. Covey called it being loyal to the absent. And so if you want to build a culture in your organization of loyalty, when a topic comes up that addresses somebody else, say someone says in a meeting, yeah, but Jody's team always drops the ball and always um, is late. You say to them, have you told Jody that? Well, no, I mean, well, why not? Well, I mean, you know, Jody, no, no, no. Let's get Jody on the phone right now. Let's call Jody in here right now and let's talk to Jody about it. I've done that many times. I have, perhaps unwisely, I have conferenced people into phone calls and said, hey, Matt, I've got Jody in the line. 
Matt, I know you've got some feedback you'd like to give Jody. And I know Jody would love to hear it directly from you and not from somebody else because like all of us, Jody wants to build a great reputation here because we care about Jody so much. We're going to give Jody the opportunity to hear this right from you. Hey, Matt, why don't you share with Jody what you are struggling with? Now, that yeah. may not be the most diplomatic way to do it, but I think being loyal That's to others- That's not awkward. Not at all. <laughs> I write about in the book, people who were loyal to me sometimes, and I didn't even deserve it. People that had extended trust to me, perhaps when I had broken it, that I, my entire legacy in my career is the result of people extending trust and loyalty out to me. So for me, I am constantly trying to be a better model of being loyal to those who are absent so that I build trust with those who are present. Beautiful. And I want to call out and make sure that people understand that it's also being loyal to those outside of your circle or outside of your team. And if you or your team are all loyal to each other, but gossip or talk about other teams, then that sets the tone, that sets the environment and makes it okay for them to do the same. And that's not okay. That's right. I think it comes from the top. You know, it comes from the top. The CEO, the C-suite, the executive leaders, senior management, mid-management, everyone needs to be part of this. And honestly, you can transform an organization's culture in one meeting. If the CEO or the president or the executive director, whoever, stands up and says, we're going to build a new culture starting one hour from now, and it's going to start with me. I am going to cease some behaviors that I have previously engaged in, maybe not nefariously, maybe not even consciously, but I'm going to stop disparaging people behind their backs. And instead, I'm going to summon the courage and the consideration and the diplomacy to ensure that if I have an issue related to your performance, your personality, your interaction, your contribution, that you will hear it from me first. And furthermore, if I am in any conversation, where someone else is accidentally or nefariously or purposely diminishing someone else, I will stop that conversation and make sure that person is invited to that. And now I'm going to fall down on this. I'm not going to always be perfect. So I encourage you to call me out, maybe in private, maybe via email, (laughs) maybe not on stage, but I'm going to ask you to call me out because I want to be a model of this. And I'm going to ask every one of you to hold each other accountable. We're all going to slip up. But if our desire is to build a culture with no gossip, no backbiting, no politicking, and no fighting, that's going to require each of us to build some skills that we don't have. We might have to learn something new or do something different or move us out of our comfort zone. That kind of speech can transform an organization overnight. It's not Pollyanna. I think it's very practical. Radical, but practical. It is, but tying a culture change to behaviors is so key. Because it's your team's behaviors that really create the true culture. It's true and it all starts at the top. Someone's got to catch the executive director saying, you know, I need to talk to Tina about that and I haven't yet. So let's actually move off that agenda item because I want to be congruent with what I'm asking everyone else to do. So I will talk to Tina by end of today about that. And she or I, one will report back to you tomorrow. Let's move to the next topic. That's what's called a transition figure. And the moment when you catch yourself falling down or you catch somebody else falling down or you choose to raise yourself to a higher standard, other people now feel reinforced. Oh, you're serious about this. This wasn't just some speech on the stage to make a rah-rah 
contribution, you're serious about modeling this transformation. There you go. And demonstrating it. One of the other things you talk about in your book is making time for relationships. And as I think of leaders, especially as leaders are being promoted and are managing larger and larger organizations, it seems like they're juggling more and more things. It's difficult to slow down and take time for relationships. So how can that be helpful? Well, I think it's instrumental. I think, first, let me debunk a human resource myth. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. That's not true. Stop saying that if someone is. It is the relationships between your people that are, in fact, your organization's most valuable asset. It's how Matt and Scott complement each other. It's how we work well, diffuse conflict, lift each other up. It's how we forgive each other. It's how we pre-forgive each other. Because Matt can have a black belt master Six Sigma certification, and Scott can be a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, two smartest people in the world. But if Matt and Scott can't get along and work well together, then the company doesn't need them. It's how people work well together that is your ultimate competitive advantage. It's the relationships. Relationships are everything. And I think part of the challenge in a lot of leadership roles, Matt, is people confuse efficiency with effectiveness. Dr. Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I often will be on interviews with journalists and they'll mistakenly call it out of ignorance, not out of you know, sinister motive, The Seven right. Habits of Highly Efficient People. No, he wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's a difference between being efficient and being effective. Now, for example, I struggle with this. I'm a very efficient person. I'm a very productive person. I get up at 4 a.m. I write my column for Inc. Magazine. I write two chapters of my books. At seven o'clock, I'm a dad to three boys for an hour and a half. And then I become an executive officer from you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. 6 p.m., I'm a dad and a husband again. Then I go back to writing and interviewing and reading. I get stuff done. Saturday morning, I get up at five o'clock. I'm at Home Depot buying the flowers by 5.30. They're planted by 6.30. Lawn raked by 7.30. Lawn mowed by 8.30. Car mowed by 9.30. You're exhausted. This has been a key positive contributor to much of my success professionally. The problem is with leaders like me that have an efficiency mindset, we treat mowing the lawn and taking out the garbage cans the same way we do our meetings, our relationships at work. So one of the profound things that Dr. Covey said is with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. We all need to slow down when it comes time to building relationships and understand there's a time to be efficient, some texts, managing your social media, responding to emails, maybe some meetings, there's a time to be effective. And that time to be effective is in almost every social interaction. When you're having a meeting, back in the good old days when we were in face-to-face, close your laptop. Don't just turn over your phone, turn off your phone. Take off the damn Apple Watch that keeps pinging you every three minutes. Because every time you look at it, I think you're either distracted, disinterested, or I'm going too long. I can't tell you how many times I'll be in a conversation with someone who looks at their watch seven times. And every time they're sending me the signal that what I am saying is not relevant, valuable, or engaging. And I'll always say, do you have to go? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. I'm like, take off your damn watch. Yeah. So I think the insight here is if you are like me at all, and your success has been built on your productivity, your efficiency, your urgency addiction. I'm not diminishing that. Those are great skills. Hell, I love a good crisis. It's one of my, my best work. And I've been known 
to cook one up if it doesn't exist because I thrive on the dopamine and the adrenaline. But I have to be mindful that not everybody can operate that way in a sustained period of time. So I'm much more thoughtful at work and at home when to be in an efficiency mindset and when to move and slow down into an effectiveness mindset. Long answer, but I think it's a profound point. It absolutely is. And that's such a powerful statement. Slow down to go fast, go fast to slow down. I think I just butchered that. No, you said it right. It's basically with people, fast is slow, but slow is fast. I mean, ponder on that, right? If you take the time to slow down, listen, explain, provide context, talk about the why behind the what. It might be frustrating. It might seem pedantic to you. But if you take the time to slow down and listen, to explain, to understand, you can validate somebody without agreeing with them. You can listen to someone and repeat back to them what they said without agreeing with them. These are skills that we all know. We just, in this hyper-connected, efficient world where it's more and more and more, we tend to fall into that trap when if you believe philosophically that the most important thing, perhaps beyond your soul, if you believe that, or your reputation, are the relationships in your life and in your organization, then you will take the time to invest in them. So when you do need to draw upon them, when you do need to have a high courage conversation, when you do need to give someone feedback on their blind spots, oh, they know your intent. They know that your trust with them is high. Therefore, your ability to accelerate positive movement is built on that relationship that you cannot create overnight or in one meeting or one Zoom call. Definitely. And if you take that time, then your people will feel valued. And when your people feel valued, they'll be more effective too. Bam. There we go. Scott, we have learned so much from you today, but I know that there's a whole lot more that people can learn from you. Where can people go to learn more? So obviously, I'm an officer at Franklin Covey. I host now the world's largest podcast leadership called On Leadership with Scott Miller. You can go to franklincovey.com slash on leadership and register for the podcast. Also, managementmess.com is a website that really tells you all things about the book. There's some videos from me on managementmess.com. You can look there as well to really understand all 30 of these practices I think I shared the first chapter of the book, but managementmess.com is a great way. And I'd love it if you connected to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to be a connection to you. Perhaps follow me. I post the um, ink columns every week there, as well as the podcast. So um, LinkedIn is a great resource as well. Absolutely. So pretty much if people are looking for you, they can find you. I think that's my wife said, and it was not a compliment. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> All right, last question. If you were to create a soundtrack for Management Mess to Leadership Success, what songs would you include? You know, they would be few but mighty. And I tell you, Matt, yeah. when I was interviewed for my first job at the Disney company, the vice president of HR threw me a curveball in the middle of a very serious interview where basically everybody but me was an Ivy Leaguer. She said to me with literally no hesitancy, she said, what song best represents who you are as a person? And Ooh. she completely took me off guard. I'm not a huge music consumer. I just don't have time. I appreciate it. It's not my main entertainment venue. But without hesitation, I said, 
oh, Gloria Estefan's get on your feet, get up and make it happen. I think it's like one of her original songs from like the 80s or something. But so my soundtrack would definitely include get on your feet, get up and make it happen. I think it would include I'm Still Standing by Elton John. Remember that oldie? Yeah. I love it. Probably anything from Katy Perry because I just love her enthusiasm. I love pop music. I probably would include something from R. Kelly, except for he's a bad person, so I'm not going to support him. I'll let the courts decide that, but I think there's evidence that shows he probably has some issues. But I'd stick with those two. I think anything from Katy Perry, but get on your feet, get up and make it happen, and I'm still standing from Elton John. Fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Those are embarrassing. My wife heard those. She would be very concerned about her marital choice, but I'm just telling you the truth. (laughs) And there you go. It's being able to be vulnerable and truthful. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. I'm so grateful for all that you've shared with us today. Matt, thank you for the platform. Keep on. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Scott Miller. Now, before you go and learn more from him at managementmess.com, go ahead and check out his podcast, Franklin Covey on Leadership with Scott Miller. I mean, you're already in a podcast player, so that should be pretty simple for you to do right now. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It'll make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Brian Dixon. Brian's a best-selling author, podcaster, speaker, and business coach, and he's the author of the book, Start With Your People. Brian shows us that success in business, or really any area of life, starts with people. Focusing on, loving, and serving the people around you. So go ahead and subscribe and you'll automatically get Brian's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.